0: Hello and welcome to Beyond Well, I'm Sheila Hamilton. You know, I had one goal when I started this podcast and that was to bring zero cost information to you about mental health and the evidence-based tips that you can use to stay well together. And as part of that promise, I only partner with organizations or people whose products I really believe in. So I'd like you to know more about Active Recovery TMS. TMS is an evidence-based non-drug therapy for depression and OCD. And if your depression medication has failed to bring you relief, transcranial magnetic stimulation is both safe, it's effective, and it's covered by most insurances. My late husband did not respond well to antidepressants or mood stabilizers, and I would have given anything to know that there are other remedies for depression that have been studied, tested, and FDA approved. TMS is targeted to the specific area of the brain that is underactive in depression and overactive in OCD. And the patient testimonials, which we're going to be sharing are so emotional. These people literally have their lives back after undergoing treatment. I believe in the entire team at Active Recovery TMS, and they'll work with you on an individual basis to make sure you get relief. TMS therapy is covered by most insurance plans and with multiple locations in Oregon and Washington, there is a location near you. Learn more at activerecoverytms.com. Welcome back to Beyond Well, I'm Sheila Hamilton and Kimmy Kolp is a TV and film producer and she's the host of All The Wiser podcast. And her unique specialty is in identifying and developing stories that I love, stories with soul. As a filmmaker and TV producer, she's traveled the world interviewing hundreds of people with the intention of inspiring audiences. And most recently, she produced Gleason, which is a feature-length documentary film that follows the journey of her friend Steve Gleason, and his wife, Michelle. Gleason premiered at Sundance in 2016. It was purchased by Amazon Studios and Open Road Films, and the New York Times picked it as a shortlist with the 2017 Academy Awards. Congratulations, Kimmy. That's a huge, huge win in the media business to have both a feature film and that long career as a great producer. Well, thank you. It all feels like a while ago. Kimmy's podcast has been focusing on these unique stories. And one of the stories that really stood out to me was Kimmy's own story of what I could say only as coming clean, coming real with her own story of bipolar disorder. Kimmy, how long did you keep the diagnosis about bipolar disorder to yourself? Or only to very close friends?
1: Close to 25 years. I was diagnosed when I was 19. It was about two and a half years ago when I decided to share my own story on the podcast. I kind of had this moment where as a journalist, You know, your job is to have these real honest conversations and the intent is to be brave and honest and create sort of the safe space to have these conversations. And that I was, in fact, asking people to do something that I was not willing to do myself. And I have found that in these honest, vulnerable, often hard conversations, they can really be of service to others. I just decided to join them in in their brave act of sharing their stories and share my own.
0: I think I told you previously how beneficial it could have been for my late husband to have met someone like you who was living well with bipolar disorder, who had a beautiful family, who had a great job, who lived with joy every day. And I wonder if you've often thought about the power of peer support for people with bipolar disorder and having examples of people who are professional, who are great moms and dads who are living full and authentic lives. I I
1: hope I can be that to people. My life is like every human being on the planet, (laughs) planet from shiny and perfect, but I have a really good life that I love and I have a lot of people I love. And and I look back at my old self and I think when you're told you're mentally ill, you're going to be on medication for the rest of your life. We have no idea what this is going to look like because at the time I legitimately thought I was going crazy. In air quotes, crazy. What, what does that mean? Yeah. And if somebody would have sat down, my future self, and said, This is what the road could look like, it would have been an extraordinary gift that I would have known that this version of living with bipolar disorder was one of the paths. And when we talk about examples, I mean, part of my shame, you know, I remember watching, I loved Homeland and the bipolar narrative in this wildly popular show Mm. is, you know, my thought was if I'm walking with my girlfriend who I've met through my kids and I share I have bipolar disorder, then she goes, you know, immediately to Carrie, immediately (laughs) running through
0: Tehran with her cape flying behind her. I get it. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Although there's pieces of Carrie I see in myself so I do think the representation piece is important. There's lots of ways this this illness, like any illness, can look like. And so I hope I can be an example of what it looks like when taken seriously and doing your best to manage.
0: I want to just go back, if we can, to the early years. Now you see yourself probably through the lens of a child who had the brain that was ripe for bipolar disorder, right? You probably yeah. look at a lot of your behaviors but is there a version of yourself that you can remember thinking, "Ah, it might've been hard to diagnose me as a child. It it really did manifest in my teenage years as it does for many people for a variety of reasons. But is there a, a version of you in your childhood that you think, oh, that's definitely when my bipolar disorder started showing up?
1: I think it was late high school years. I have this vivid memory based around a breakup or perceived rejection heartache thing. And of having a lot of thoughts of self-harm and a level of emotion and weight and pain disproportionate now looking back to the circumstances Mm. and however present it was. I mean, teenage heartbreak is a very real thing, but I think the way looking back how I was experiencing high and lows, now I can see that is extreme. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I look at that version of myself and think that's
0: off. And you were on a trip to Africa when you felt like you were really being tipped. Could you describe that for people?
1: Yeah. So in hindsight, what is mania? I mean, the interesting thing about this illness is the quote unquote upside of it is there are a lot of things that are largely celebrated. Mm-hmm. So when you're living just enough above the line where you're really productive and you're bright and shiny and you're charismatic and you're the life of the party. And I was kind of out of nowhere, all A's, just like crushing it. I had lost a ton of weight. I started running from literally being not a runner to running like six, seven miles a day, just oh, wow. taking off, acing my classes. And then also being the fun girl at the party, dancing on the tables. Wow. Look at her. So <laughs> like, athletic. I was in shape. I was a great student. Um, we went to Africa, um, which was a trip of a lifetime. It's what I hope to do for my 50th birthday, minus the manic onset. <laughs> And I came back and I didn't sleep for days, literally. And I think the, the travel and the circadian rhythm and, and things started tipping in the other direction. And then it just went pretty quickly into this mixed state of depression and anxiety, which literally just felt like the ocean had just crashed over my head Hmm. in the darkest of ways. And I was scared out of my mind.
0: I've often read that the reason the suicide rate is so high in people with bipolar disorder and it's 50% is because of this mixed state. It's because of that unrelenting unreliability of you to be able to determine what your mood is going to be from one moment to the next. The the depression is so much worse, right? Once you sort of yeah. come up and maybe see some of the signs and the symptoms that you exhibited during the mania. And you kind of see that version of your cringy self. I've heard that that's also one of the reasons a lot of people die by suicide in the depressive thing, but I witnessed a mixed state in my husband. And it was one of the scariest things I've ever seen in my life. There's been no movie, no book, nothing that can depict the horror of watching someone go through a mixed state. Kimmy, I'm so sorry you had to experience that.
1: Well, thank you. You know, I, I have have yet to that, to that first onset had anything to that level, but it was uh, just scary. And I mean, to not be able to even feel remotely at peace in your skin and your body and Mm -hmm. kind of have nowhere to go. And then when the sleep is evasive, there's there's really no escape. I remember having a lot of um, going as I was getting diagnosed in the, fountain in the doctor's office was super loud like the overstimulation was for the first time something I experienced just to even move in the world a fountain or noises were heightened and Mm. that was scary I mean it was I felt like I was losing my mind here I was as I said you know weeks before like outward bound you know brushing the presentation (laughs) in class college boyfriend and here she goes she's going mad
0: When you were uh, diagnosed and thank God you had parents that were just super understanding and they said, let's get you help. And they actually knew and were receptive to psychiatric help. Was there any part of you that resisted the diagnosis then, or were you so relieved to have some understanding as to what was actually happening in your psyche?
1: No, I was so desperate to not feel what I was feeling. I just wanted answer. I wanted anything. I mean, I was like the student of all students. They started giving me a list and I was like, all right, no sugar, no alcohol. I mean, I was doing everything. I was so terrified that this was now going to be my life. And then that's a part of me. I think I get pretty dogged and I get resolved, but not only was I terrified and committed, I didn't know that I was capable of staying the long haul in that state. I just didn't know that that was even an option that I could make it.
0: Yeah. I think I told you that my husband described it as Dante's ninth circle of hell because he was a big reader. And he said, I'd never had that feeling of skin crawling, agitation, the inability to even cope with oneself. He actually began having olfactory hallucinations where he smelled himself as rotting because you are so heightened to every smell that your brain is interpreting it oddly. So I just know a lot of people could be listening and thinking, how bad could it be? It's bad. It's really, really bad. You went on after you were diagnosed and given a medication that seemed to help you to a really fabulous career. I want you to talk a little bit about your career, if you will, and also in the realm of your bipolar is under control, but is it also sort of helping you again, now that you have back the superwoman qualities of it?
1: Yeah, so it's under control, it's not. You know, this was the hardest Maybe the hard part early on was the assessing out of, okay, well, what is a disorder and a chemical imbalance and the characteristics that come as a result of that? And who am I like Mm -hmm. my God-given innate self, a lot of the things that you could put under the bipolar disorder column, you know, gregarious, outgoing, creative, all these things that there's a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of creatives, a lot of people who lived on the spectrum of this disorder. That's been a tangled web for me. And I think I had a high flying career pretty young, and I was really good at it. And I was really good at it, in part, probably because I didn't require as much sleep as other people. Mm -hmm. My mind never shut down. And I constantly want to be creating and thinking. Mm -hmm. And I I had a boundless energy to me. So I was young and energetic and hardworking and tireless and all those things that work well for the entertainment (laughs) industry. But I, I I wasn't always well by any means. I was many times sleep deprived or turning to drinking or there was a while where I like I took Ambien because I couldn't sleep because I was yeah. traveling so much and I was always on different time zones. Well, probably I should have looked at the lifestyle and my sleep cycles and not just kept hopping on the planes and taking an Ambien. It's not as if I cracked the code and then had this incredible career where I really just rode the upside and didn't have to deal with the down. That said, lots of pieces of my life that were very healthy and full, but it was a dance for sure.
0: You know, One of the most extraordinary things about your story is that you've kept your primary relationship with your husband alive for so many decades. And so many people with bipolar disorder end up destroying not just one or two or three relationships, but almost every relationship they get in Because they don't recognize that self destructive pattern in themselves as they begin to go into a low. Yeah. Well, how did you prevent from doing that? That very common thing that a lot of us do.
1: I I should think about that. You know, what the answer to that is. I don't know if it's luck or if there was some sort of wisdom that lived within me, but I made a really wise choice for my life partner. You know, it's funny because I married a man who is, you know, from the South, you know, here I am, like, you know, like doing, you know, walking across coals and therapy and meditation and, you know, doing anything I can to heal and to talk, to feel. And here's this, you know, Southern guy who's like, what therapy, (laughs) but for whatever reason, he has, you know, weathered this with me and been a great support of it. I mean, I just, I think I got really lucky and I married a good man and like any relationship we've had chapters where, you know, it's been harder than others, but we have been able to stay the course. And again, those pieces of me, like, I think he's intrigued by my mind and my boundless energy and my projects and endeavors. And so I think there's part of it again, do we suss out? Is it the illness? Is it me? But we've been able to navigate it for the most part, you know, well.
0: What was your decision-making like when it came to having children? And you have three kids, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So first of all, there's the issue of the medicine. Do you stay on it? Do you go off it? How do you d- d- operate self-care during a pregnancy? And then there's the issue of hormones, which we know influence mania and depression. Yeah. A big surge in hormones. So what kind of discussions did you have with your doctors about that to deliver healthy pregnancies?
1: So I had a manic episode uh, in my late 20s, was not well, again, like I was emaciated, like running a million miles, hopping on planes, and then sleep issues, kind of breaking down a lot. And I came out of that and left my job, which was really healthy to just take a break from that lifestyle and just sort of be, and we had decided we wanted to start a family Again, true to myself, when I get focused, I get focused. And I was not willing to roll the dice. So I really advocated for myself. I was privileged to be in a position to live in San Francisco and have literally world class medical care and afford to be able to pay for it and to have the time to go find the right doctors. I went to the Stanford Women's Health Clinic and was working with a doctor there who got in to see them who uh, specializes in women with bipolar disorder. And then basically had him call my OBGYN and then also then had him talk to my pediatrician. At that time I was forcing it all. I was fixated on starting a family and I was scared that I was gonna lose my mind doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I like a project done well.
0: <laughs> yeah. But I think every mother wh- who has cared for an infant can kind of recognize the extent to which the mind and the body is, is stressed and how close you are to feeling that suffocated trap. Even if you haven't had some sort of postpartum depression, your hormones are giving you health. So did you bring in extra support? Did you have- well, anything- I went off
1: medications for all three pregnancies. They all looked a little bit different. The last- one, my daughter, there was some dark periods during that where I really was struggling off medication, but was able to manage it. Wow. Um. Again, talking to my psychiatrist, therapist, like super communicative with my doctors. And then the main thing was, you know, sleep is such a huge piece of this illness and uh, having a new baby is marked by sleep deprivation, right. which can take the life of someone yeah. literally. So there was a lot of questions about breastfeeding, about sleep. And I had a pediatrician, you know, I remember completely breaking down because my psychiatrist said your risk of postpartum psychosis is like this high. Mm -hmm. So we're going to ramp up the medication in the last trimester of the pregnancy. Then I'm afraid there's going to be like a cleft palate. So we're talking and looking like, okay, you know, what are all the implications of ramping up? So you go off, so you go off the medication, you're trying to, Manage not having a depressive or manic episode with no medication. Then you go back on the medication at the very end. And the idea is to get your chemicals back in balance for the postpartum period which is this high risk period oh wow um you know by the time i was in the hospital they had my chart and you know she needs to be back on the day of having the baby but the medications precluded me from breastfeeding and that was like a really big thing for me like i remember breaking down and i really wanted that and the doctor said you know sort of what's the end goal here mm-hmm. <laughs> and the end goal really was for me to be there to be the best and most present new mom that I could be to this baby mm-hmm. um and the the risk of going off the medications to breastfeed was so high that it was just disproportionate mm-hmm. but then you know then all those things why aren't you breastfeeding is it not taking do you need my lactation yeah. specialists and at that point I wasn't like oh I have like everybody disorder. yeah
0: I have been really thinking about suffering as of late and how much it kind of informs how we live our lives and what we do next and how we give gratitude and just the daily pace of our lives. If you've gone through a period where you really suffered, there's an awareness and a consciousness and a sensitivity with how you use your life. So have you been able to actually think in retrospect about all of this in how you parent and the lessons that you share with your child that you may never have learned all of these great behavioral techniques, these great communicative techniques, everything that you know about how to live your life gently in the world now is as a result of this illness in some ways.
1: Yeah, I'm grateful for the gifts it's given me as far as tools and a way of being and parenting that I wouldn't have been without this. You know, I don't know what the future holds for my three kids and their mental and emotional health, you know, there's a guarantee that they're going to suffer and it's going to be complex because that is what it means to be a human being. Yeah. But, you know, if I could hedge bets now, some of them are going to experience the world a little bit more deeply. Mm. I think I have a level of empathy. I think when I see them in pain, I don't dismiss it. I, I probably just recognize it. And I think I've committed for decades to figuring out the tools about how do I take care of myself? And so because I have done that, I now am able to teach them, right? And teach them in the moment. So I like to believe that I am really available to them in that way and that I see them wholly and that I don't dismiss any of it, you know, because that's probably the most harmful thing that can happen.
0: Do you worry? I mean, I spent a lot of time obsessing about rates of genetic transmission and going to all the evidence-based reports about genetic transmission. And then I was like, wow, it's so interesting because often the biggest test that we have is just to accept our kids as they are every single day and not to layer on them all of our own neuroses about how we don't want them to turn out. How do you cope with that? I think I have
1: some weird learned and earned faith in like the generational progress of mental health. So this is a generational, this is a familial story for me and not everyone in my family. I, I can speak about my m- own mental health journey, not not other people's, but this is something that there's a real family history. I was diagnosed, you know, 24 year versus generations past so I, I guess I have faith. I have faith that the these types of conversations that you and I are having, I have faith in science. I have faith in sort of this next generation that if, to your point, the onset is later, my kids aren't at an age where they could even be diagnosed with this illness. So that right. is an unknown. And is it scary? Yes, to think of them going through this. But I guess I have faith that things are headed in the right direction, mm. that ideally they have Me and their father, who have an area of expertise. (laughs) Yeah. And who
0: love them unconditionally. Yeah. Which is so beautiful. So, you've talked a lot about the things that you've learned to really cope with bipolar disorder. Share what it is that you are wary of when you begin to see certain behaviors or certain mind states. When do you send a message to yourself, like, oh, okay, I need to pivot just a bit?
1: I think it's the rapid acceleration of everything the speech mm-hmm. the ideas the doing the moving the projects that can be really exciting that can be productive that can be great or that can start to look a little bit like a tornado heading the winding 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 a million different things going on ideas restlessness and and that way of being is so exhaustive
0: mm-hmm.
1: for me at least I'm fueled by it but once I start to slow down a little bit, it's exhausting.
0: And and so when you see those, do you immediately talk to your psychiatrist? Do you make rest changes? Do you make exercise changes, diet changes? Or are you so familiar now with your patterns that you just kind of observe and sort of go through the period that you're going through?
1: It depends about where I am on the spectrum, you know? Mm-hmm. I've certainly gotten better as I've gotten older and matured about the, you call it basic self-care stuff, but it works, right? Yeah. And so sometimes everyone's like, oh, fresh air and nature. Oh, self-care, bubble yeah.
0: bath. Ooh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's so not sexy, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's, it can be a game changer. I remember when all of a sudden in my appointments with my psychiatrist, she started asking me about did you walk and was it outside and how much sunlight and so like this is science yeah those basic things I can turn to which is sleep I think is huge you know getting out there and moving your body it is you know therapy obviously can be really helpful when you're going through these things and trying to navigate them sugar caffeine alcohol all those things can have a really big impact on your body it's scary right because you can turn to them because your mind won't shut down or you're so exhausted that you feel like you can't get out of bed. You turn to the wrong things. So yeah, you have to navigate all of that. And when I make the right choices, I feel a lot better. You know, It's easier to be in my skin, but sometimes when you're in a bad place, making the hard choice is a hard choice.
0: Yeah. I've often thought that people who cope with all of this variation in their chemicals in their brain and the firing of their synapses, that they show up at work the same way we do, but they've done all of this just to get there. It's like they started the marathon 23 miles before we did. And we're showing up just like, okay, let's go. And they've had this enormous pressure of just getting ready to be there. I I want to say if anybody's listening and you're coping every single day with a mental illness and you're still doing it just fucking Bravo, you know, just like I have such deep bows for people because it's a lot. It is a lot.
1: It is. It's just, I, in general, the depressive episodes have been less. They've been, I actually had one earlier this year, which I hadn't had in a really long time, which was really kind of scary for me. And I don't know if it's hormonal, but I'm, less familiar and comfortable with that depressive state with, I yeah. am the other I've done it enough that it's, I know how to do it. And it's hard and it's basic. Some days it's just like, okay, I'm going to get out of bed. And then the kids are going to come back from school and I'm going to sit and be in pain and figure out what's next. And okay, that is going to be, I'm going to take a shower. But like you said, like showing up to the thing sometimes it takes a lot.
0: I have often thought, Kimmy, too, like, I feel the stigma and the shame that still exists around these illnesses is that in some ways, I'm really heartened because I think it's kind of dying with older generations. In other ways, I feel like it becomes so much a part of the conversation in youth groups that I'm not sure that people are taking the illnesses seriously as you are. You hear people say like, oh, I feel bipolar or, and yet they're they're actually not doing this really arduous work that you've described to try to stay in that path. And so I'm wondering how you view how the entire approach to the stigma around bipolar disorder and other mental health issues is improving or actually getting worse. That's a great question.
1: And I think it's a great perspective. People do use bipolar, it's like a shorthand term, like oh god, you know, talking about a yeah. boss who's gone off, yeah, yeah. which is funny, right? Because you don't know, like, I'm the person they're sitting next to telling you to, and <laughs> I'm like, actually, want to walk.
0: Thanks, no, that's uh, right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> so I, I get the damage of um, the shorthand, but yeah, I mean, I think that that is a very valid thing because it is an illness. It's an illness. It it took the life of your husband, obviously, and you're the father of your daughter. So this is a serious illness. This isn't a mood and it does have to be taken. I have no freaking clue not taking seriously what my life would look like. I mean, there has been so much work and medication and doctors and therapists and strategies that have all you know, allowed me to have a life that I, I largely love, but it required taking it seriously.
0: I am hoping that in the few minutes that we have left, because I think caregivers are often the ones that are most confused about what to do. They might see these kind of behaviors that you were talking about, either the sort of manic, grandiosity, excessive spending, extra sexuality, like, and just sort of think, well, that person's going through a weird thing when would you say is the right time to actually really have the conversation, really ask the questions and really ask for the person to examine treatment?
1: Gosh, that's such an important piece of information. I wanna be careful to give a really thoughtful and smart answer. you know, I think it's it's really hard you're you're aiming for the window where the person can receive it. And often, as you know with mania, you feel so good. You're not really interested in anybody stepping into your fabulous life, you
0: know? <laughs> what a perfect line, Kimmy. <laughs> so, I do,
1: you know, with with this illness in particular, but I would think, you know, just really observing for that quiet sacred space and that ideally that moment. And I mentioned that I had had a depression earlier this year, which I hadn't had in a long time. And this is the, you know, maybe one of my favorite marriage stories. It was, you know, it was about a month. It wasn't too long, but it was not in a good place. My husband was so great. You know, you should sleep in or just being a supportive partner in life yeah. for, you know, as he's watching me struggle with depression. And one night I went to bed really early. It was like six 30 and I just couldn't deal. And I went upstairs and I shut all the lights off and I was crying in bed. Nothing circumstantially but I just in my body was dealing with this, which, and again, not really comfortable with this depressive piece of me. Yeah. He came, I thought he was going to go, was going to the bathroom. We opened the door and he walked in and he just turned off the lights in the bathroom and got back in the bed and just lied there. And he didn't say anything. And he just lied next to me. And it was one of the most just to sit with somebody in it. And so I think especially it almost makes me cry thinking of it for men and for him who are often about fixing. And he's very much like, well, you know what to do. It's going to get better. Sometimes you just, just sit with them. He didn't say a word and I couldn't have felt more safe. Mm -hmm. You know, in that moment,
0: I really want people to understand how beautiful an offering you're giving to the world through your podcast and through the work that you're currently doing. Well, thank you. If you would just talk a little bit about the joy of this, these conversations, because I've just been diving deep every single day (laughs) because I go out for a long walk and I'm like, oh, here's this amazing conversation with really thoughtful people that make me feel better about the world. What's your intention behind those, Kimmy?
1: Yeah, so I think I'm I'm drawn and probably part of it is living with bipolar. I'm drawn to these conversations of weight. I'm drawn to talking about things that feel deep and intimate and real mm. and worthwhile. And I found that often some of the most fascinating, interesting people have been through really difficult things and they have incredible stories to share And with those stories and experiences, they have a lot of wisdom that's hard earned. And the ones who are brave enough, you know, to show up and serve it to others, I feel like it's a gift. It's a blessing, a privilege to be able to talk to these people, to learn from these people, to hear their stories, to hear their journeys, and to play a part in sharing that wisdom with others. And they're largely inspirational. They're also really honest. I I really want to be careful that we're not a you know, tie everything up in a bow pretty podcast because these stories are solitary confinement. These are real, real, you know, serious issues and life circumstances, but people are just resilient and they're remarkable and they're good. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have a lot of common themes about what matters most. And so, yeah, I just, I feel like I get to have real conversations and and that is a, a gift and the stories are again, entertaining and the fact that they're high stakes and they're, you know, often really dramatic things that that they have been through but the heart and the intention is the wisdom and the lesson.
0: Yeah, and you say that the experiences shine color and light on everyone else's journey that these their gems to share to make someone else's life richer and easier. It's so extraordinary that when you finish hearing something that is so dramatic and so like could be the movie of the week, you actually feel way way better. That's yeah. something that you could never do in television news or your other previous yeah, jobs. So Congratulations. Yeah. All the wiser is the podcast and how can people find you online?
1: On Instagram or at all the wiser podcast, or you can follow me personally. It's Kimmy Culp, K-I-M-I and then Culp, C-U-L-P on Instagram. And Instagram is where I tend to hang out both personally and professionally. So all the wiser podcasts are Kimmy Culp. Or if you want to learn more, you can go to my website, KimmyCulp.com. And I have lots of stuff about my various projects and endeavors there.
0: I'm going to close the same way that you closed with me by saying that we were introduced by my daughter's boyfriend's mother, which sounds like it is a long, elongated circle of people, but our worlds are very small. And I feel like I was just destined to know you, Kimmy. It's really, really wonderful to spend time with you.
1: I feel the same way. And I hope that next time is in person.
0: Yeah, same. All All right, take good care. All
1: right, you too.